Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Pray. Lord, when we stand before you, we have nothing to bring. All we have is Christ. And Christ is all we need. And so we thank you for your provision of him for us. That we can stand before you. That we can enjoy you. And that we can live life in a way that reflects your glory. Pray that you would help us do that more this day. In Jesus' name, amen. This Wednesday is the 4th of July. As many of you know, it is one of my favorite uh, holidays of the year, mostly because it's in summer, which is very fun. Um, It is a day that we celebrate our Declaration of Independence, a day that we celebrate freedom from oppression. We celebrate with fireworks and barbecues and massive furniture sales. because that's how John Hancock would do it. So as a child, we celebrated 4th of July in a lot of different ways. One of the ways is that we would gather together with people in our neighborhood in what we called the common grounds. And we would get there, be a big big potluck. We'd hang out, um, chat, eat good food together. And then when it would get dark, all the teenage kids, I wasn't that old yet, but they would disappear kind of down towards the end of the common grounds. At the end of the common grounds, there was this field, but on the sides, it kind of sloped off to the side. And what they would do is they would go down there to have bottle rocket wars. Um, Now, if you're wondering what that is, it's exactly what it sounds like. What they would do is they would take metal pipes or they'd take wiffle ball bats and cut off the end, and they would get a bunch of bottle rockets and be on opposite sides of this hill, and they would shoot bottle rockets at each other. And the parents were completely okay with this, which changed after a few kids got hurt. But that's how we celebrated the 4th of July. You know, no matter how we celebrate freedom, freedom is worth celebrating, isn't it? Freedom is something we should appreciate and cherish. It is a gift from God that is often secured by the blood of brave men and women who have laid down their life to secure that freedom. I don't think it's a stretch to say that as a country, freedom is our mantra. It's one of our prized possessions. Many people join the military because they want to fight for freedom. And yet, if we are honest... Some of us are freer than others. You see, wherever sin is present, selfishness is present. And wherever selfishness is present, oppression is present. And wherever oppression is present, freedom is minimized. Because of sin and selfishness, sometimes unknowingly, the strong oppress the weak. The rich oppress the poor. The crafty oppress the simple. 
and the powerful oppress the vulnerable. This happens throughout our world. It happens on a global scale. All you have to do is see what's happening with human trafficking throughout the world. Forced slavery. People that cannot get the basic necessities of food and water because of government corruption. It happens on a national scale. Several ways it's been highlighted. Men receive a higher pay for doing the same job that a woman does. Or minorities that are being taken advantage of because they are immigrants and having them do things that we would never think of doing. Or maybe even taking, or maybe even the oppression of minorities in our culture that have a harder time getting ahead in our culture because of the color of their skin. There's also oppression at a local scale. All of the above for sure, but furthermore, if you went down to 9th Street Mission or Lion of Judah here in town, the pastor can tell you about children who come to their services without shoes on that are starving because their parents are taking the little money that they have to buy alcohol and drugs. And so they are being oppressed by the people that God has given to care for them. If you go into a school, you will find kids that are oppressing other kids. We call it bullying simply because of the way they look or the way they act or what they wear. Even in the workplace, there are executives that use their position of power to intimidate others. Oppression happens in many ways, in many places, at many levels. But the question for us today is, how should the people of God respond to oppression in the world? How should we respond when the freedom that God has intended is jeopardized by the corruption of others? And there's three things I want to look at here today. You'll notice it's a little bit different than the bulletin sometimes that happens. But the first thing that we need to do is to hear the oppressed. The second is to challenge the oppressors. And the third is overthrow the oppression. To hear the oppressed, challenge the oppressors, and overthrow the oppression. First, to hear the oppressed. I want to read through the first five verses with you, and then I'm going to backtrack and explain what's being said here in its cultural context. So Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our field and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. In verse 1, it says there was a great outcry. This is a, this is a word that would ring loudly in Jewish audiences' ears. This was the word used to describe the way that the people cried out to God when they were in slavery in Egypt for 400 years, when God came and heard their cry and delivered them. The outcry in this circumstance is not from external oppression like the Egyptians or the people around them, but from internal oppression, from their own Jewish brothers that are oppressing them. You see, in chapter 4, if you remember from last week, there was the external oppression. But external oppression can tend to bring people together. It can galvanize people as they fight against the external oppression. 
But internal oppression is so dangerous because it can tear people apart. And that's what's happening here. Now, if we look at these verses, there are three major outcries, okay? And so I want to quickly walk through those with you. The first we see here in verse 2. It says, For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. These are people who don't own land, who need to earn an income so that they can eat, and they're unable to do so with their husbands and, and sons off building the wall. And so they cry out to Nehemiah to, to give them food to eat. It's interesting in this passage, they don't ask for their husbands back because they know their husbands are, are doing an important work of God, rebuilding the wall. But they ask that, that Nehemiah would give them food so that they could survive. We'll get back to this again more later. But the second outcry is in verse 3. It says, there were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. Unlike the first group, this group were landowners, they were farmers, and evidently there was a famine in the land, and the harvest was not sufficient for them to keep their own possessions. They were impoverished, and so they were taking out loans, putting up their fields and vineyards and houses as collateral simply so that they could eat and survive. Then there is the third outcry, verse 4. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. King Darius of the time would tax the people based on an average yield. And in a time of famine with husband and sons gone rebuilding the wall, you can imagine how difficult it would be to pay those taxes. And so they are taking out loans just to pay their taxes. And then we move on to verse 5 and 6, which is probably a collective cry of all of these people. It says, Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as their children. What they're saying is, is those that are oppressing us are our brothers in the faith. They too are Jews. They too are Israelites. We are all children of Abraham. We are one family, and yet they are oppressing us. They say, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. This is a debt slavery. So if you owe Mr. Jones $10,000 for a loan, instead of getting that loan, repaying that loan, you can, you can have your daughter go work for him as a nanny for a year until that debt is paid off. I mean, I, if you have children or, or if you long to have children, you can imagine how painful it would be to send your child off to be enslaved by someone for a year simply so that you and the rest of the kids could eat. Nehemiah continues and he says, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. It's interesting because he just said that at the first part of this verse. I don't think Nehemiah's, you know, repeating himself. What, what this term with its connotation is, is that there is some sort of sexual enslavement amongst the people of God. He says, but it is not in our power to help it, for our men have our fields and our vineyards. In other words, they do not have the resources to pay back the loans to those who have loaned the money because they don't even have property anymore to give it to them. So here they are, the people of God trying to rebuild the wall of God, and they're being oppressed by one another. And what makes the problem worse, really the underlying matter to all of this doesn't come up till verse 7. Verse 7. 
which we'll read in a minute. But what we learn is that they're charging interest on those loans to the poor. Now, to be clear, it was right and good for the people of God to loan money or loan resources, whatever, to those who are poor. It was a good thing to do. But what was forbidden was to charge interest on those loans because God knew that that would keep people in slavery and financial oppression. Matter of fact, when God brings the people out of slavery in Egypt, he gives them the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. And then in Exodus chapter 22, God is giving, the, giving more of the social justice law. And he says this. He says, if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him. And you shall not exact interest from him. Later in Leviticus 25, God says this. He says, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you. You shall support him. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave as they were doing at that time. He shall be to you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. And so to be clear, the, the problem is not that the rich are loaning money to the poor. That's actually a good thing. But what is wrong is that they are charging interest to keep the poor poor and make the rich richer. In all of these cases, it's causing issues. If you take the first instance where they're saying, we don't have any food to eat, the problem there is that the rich are not loaning money to the poor so that they can eat because they have no collateral to give. And so they have nothing. And then you take the second and third group that complain, and the problem there is that they are charging such high interest that it's putting them greater in debt, and because they no longer have possession of their land, they cannot pay it back. And so here is the people of God, the messy people of God. Some of them following God's calling to rebuild the city of God for the glory of God, putting themselves in vulnerable places, while others take advantage of that opportunity and oppress them, taking advantage for their own selfish desires. And see how Nehemiah responds in verse 6. He says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. As we continue on in the chapter, it's very clear that Nehemiah is not angry at those who, who cried out. He's angry at those who have oppressed those that were vulnerable within the community. Nehemiah heard the cries of the oppressed, and it made him very angry. And so let me ask you, do you hear the cries of the oppressed? Or better yet, do you allow yourself to hear the cries of the oppressed? Or do you avoid these matters at all costs so that you can live in a life of comfort insulated from such brokenness. This past spring, I went to a conference called Together for the Gospel, and it is a conference that's held in um, Louisville, Kentucky, where the Louisville Cardinals play basketball. It is a, it's a huge stadium, kind of like the Rush Center, and it was filled out to the brim. Thousands of men and hundreds of women most of them were pastors. It was held during the week. They were in pastoral staff of some sort. They come to be refreshed, which is great. Well, about a month before the conference was going to happen, we were told that one of the keynote speakers was not going to be speaking this year. 
And the reason why he was not going to be speaking this year was because there were some allegations that he mishandled um, some inappropriate conduct. He didn't report it to the authorities. And so he claims innocence to it, but he said, you know what, just so I'm not a distraction, I'm going to back out of this conference. And of course, people were disappointed because this guy is a phenomenal speaker and spiritual leader. Well, we're there at the conference, and it's the middle of the week, and we're lit out for lunch. And thousands of pastors are, are, are exiting the building, and, these, and hundreds of women. And as we're exiting the building, there is, a sign, there is a group of women out there that have a sign, and I can't remember what it says, but it was very clear. They were saying, learn the truth about what's happening at this ministry of so-and-so. And I'm not kidding you. It was like the parting of the Red Sea. Uh, no, no men, no women came within uh, 30 feet of these women. They wanted to go opposite directions. And, and to be honest, to my shame, I was one of those people who went the opposite way. And the reason was is because I did not want to hear the oppression. I, I did not want to enter into the brokenness. Now, to be honest with you, I don't know if they were right or wrong or if the, the minister is right or wrong. I don't know, but I did not want to enter into it. I was hungry. I wanted to go get lunch. I didn't care about that. And I was a little bit mad that he wasn't speaking. The point is this. I didn't stop because I didn't want to enter in. I didn't want to hear of oppression. It was too inconvenient for me. Friends, are you willing to hear the cries of the oppressed? When people are crying out, are you willing to listen? Psalm 34 says, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears. God hears the cries of the oppressed. He calls us to do the same. Now, we must not only hear the cries of the oppressed, but we must also courageously challenge the oppressors. Look at verse 6 with me again. Nehemiah says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. Now this is extremely risky for Nehemiah to do. It takes a lot of courage to confront the elite members of society, but it is typically the elite members of society, the powerful ones, the rich ones that are oppressing other people. And this is risky for Nehemiah because he's governor and he needs their support to continue in his governorship and at very least to, to have a happy governorship. I mean, they could make his life miserable. And yet, courageously, he goes to challenge the oppressors. It continues, I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. Again, he doesn't say neighbor. He says, brother, you are family of God. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. In other words, we have been exiled throughout the world, sold into slavery. God is doing an amazing work of bringing us back to the promised land. And what you are doing with their new freedom is you are selling them back into slavery. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations our enemies. See, the oppression of the poor by the elite was one of the reasons God brought judgment upon the people of God, because he heard the cries of the oppressed, and he cast them out from the promised land. 
to shake them, to discipline them, to bring them back to himself so that they would fear God and follow God and treat the poor with compassion. And Nehemiah's warning, do you want that to happen again? Verse 10, moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain as they should be. Let us, as the people of God, abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their house, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Nehemiah is calling them to full-fledged repentance. He's not just asking them to feel bad or to feel guilty or to feel sad about what they did. He's not just asking them to stop what they're doing, which is important, but he's actually asking them to make it right, to return the fields to them, to return the interest to them. You see, this is what biblical repentance is. Biblical repentance isn't just feeling sorry for your sin and sorrow over your sin. It is determining to stop your sin and to work at restoration. And so when you sin against someone, when you offend someone, it's not simply feeling sorry and and vowing to yourself, I'm never going to do that again, but going to them and repenting to them for the sake of restoring your relationship with them. Now, if you were there and you could imagine the situation, Nehemiah draws this great assembly of people. He brings the nobles up front and he says, you guys have done this. It's wrong. It's bad. It is not good. You need to repent. You need to return all the items to these people. How do you think they would respond? You might be surprised. Look at verse 12. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. Friends, that's called accountability. (laughs) When you bring the priests in and make them swear before the priests and before all the people, that's holding them accountable to do what they said they were going to do. Verse 13. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. This is an awesome response. I mean, this is about as good a response as you can find. There is true, deep, full repentance. They agreed to make restitution, to make things right again. Friends, we are called as a people of God to boldly and courageously confront the oppressors in our community, to challenge them, to call them to repentance, to call them to do what is right. I've shared this illustration before, but it's still one that sticks out to me. Um, In the movie Hotel Rwanda, there is an American news source that goes over to capture footage of a genocide that is taking place. And Paul, who's the main character, a native of that land, says to Jack, the the cameraman from the United States, he says this, he says, I'm glad that you have shot this footage and that the world will see it. It is the only way we have a chance that people might intervene. Jack, the cameraman, responds saying, yeah, and if no one intervenes, is it still a good thing to show? And then Paul responds, how can they not intervene when they witness such atrocities? And Jack says, I think if people see this footage, they'll say, oh my God, that's horrible. 
and they go on eating their dinner. Guilty. (laughs) Christians, may we be people that courageously challenge oppression, that fight for justice, who speak up for those who have no voice or who only have one voice and need more voices to come alongside them. May we challenge our oppressors to repent and to do what is good. Finally, we must overthrow oppression in our own lives. You may ask, how do we do this? You know, the oppression's so great. There's so much of it. I'm just one person. How do we overthrow oppression? And the answer is through generosity, as we see here. Verse 14. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. A governor has every right to collect taxes to feed himself, to feed his family, to earn an income. The governors before Nehemiah abused this right. They oppressed the people by charging way too much for taxes. They, they took lots of silver. They took lots of food to feed their bank account, to feed their bellies. But Nehemiah comes along. And Nehemiah doesn't only just set it right. He doesn't take the proper amount. He takes no amount. He decides he's going to do this job for free because he knew that it was more than a job. It was a calling from God. Friends, this is called mercy. Nehemiah had every right to take those taxes from the people at the appropriate amount. And yet he decided to take none of it and to absorb the debt himself. That is called mercy. Nehemiah was a wealthy man like many other wealthy men in that community. But do you notice the difference? Many of the other men used their wealth simply to make more wealth. But Nehemiah used his wealth to fight for the oppressed. Friends, you can either let your money dictate your faith, or you can let your faith dictate your money. This was the difference between Nehemiah and the other men of that culture at that time, until he called them to repentance. At the end of verse 15, we learn why Nehemiah did this. He says, but I do not do so. Because of the fear of God. How does the fear of God influence your work? How does the fear of God influence your finances? How does the fear of God influence your holiness? The fear of God is a motivation to have the heart of God, who is compassionate and loving and generous and hears the cries of the oppressed. Now, as we move on, what we'll see is that Nehemiah is not only merciful and not taking the allowance that is owed to him, but he goes above and beyond. Verse 17. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and official, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and 
every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Who wants to be Nehemiah's friend? I want to be Nehemiah's friend. I mean, every day is Thanksgiving at Nehemiah's house. And once every 10 days, he breaks out the wine. Probably not boxed wine. Probably the expensive stuff, right? It continues. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Friends, what Nehemiah is doing here is he is practicing grace, abundant grace, overflowing grace. You see, not taking the money that was owed to him as mercy, but to remain neutral would have been fine. People would have been thankful. People would have been gracious. But he not only did not take that money owed to him, he actually poured out grace upon them. He fed them night after night after night, this great banquet. It was a lavish display of grace. Now, what allows Nehemiah to do this? See, Nehemiah is, is overthrowing systematic oppression in the culture, one person at a time, one family at a time, by pouring out mercy and grace. What allows him to do this? Well, it's because Nehemiah knew that he was a recipient of all of these things from God above. And friends, so are you and I who trust in Christ. You see, we were at one time helpless enslaved and indebted. We were helpless in our relationship with God, could do nothing to return to him. We were enslaved in our sin and in our selfishness. We were indebted to God because of our sin, the punishment of that being death and hell for all eternity. But in the midst of our helpless slavery, indebtedness, God showers us with mercy and with grace. He showers us with mercy by becoming a man, that man Jesus, who confronted our oppressors and overthrew them by absorbing our debt, by taking on our helplessness, and at the cross, paying for all of our sin. And then he rose again from the dead to free us from slavery, to give us freedom in this life, for it is freedom that Christ has set us free. Friends, this is extraordinary mercy. This is extraordinary grace. And this is what God has called us to give to others. God pours out on us mercy and grace that we may be conduits of it to others. Vacation Bible School is one of my favorite weeks of the year. It's a year which we, with the kids, feast and dwell and soak in the grace and mercy of God. This year, the theme was Jesus Rescues. And one of the ways we wanted to not only receive grace and mercy, we wanted to practice grace and mercy. And so, so what we did is we started this fund where kids could give to help, to help buy school supplies for children in the foster care system in the Green Bay area. Those who have suffered oppression, again, by, by those that were called to care for them the most. Our children raised over $1,000 in five days, which was amazing. On one occasion, a teacher told me of a student who brought in their piggy bank and emptied it out to care for those who were in need. They didn't have to do this, but the reason they did this is because they were captured by the mercy and grace of God for us in Christ. Friends, we can learn a lot from children, can't we? How do we overthrow oppression in our culture? 
by simply doing to others what God has done for you in Christ. By living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. By lavishing upon the oppressed mercy and grace. Let me end with this. Verse 19 is a hard verse. Uh, It says, Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. It's a hard verse because it sounds like Nehemiah is trying to earn his salvation, and it kind of goes against everything Nehemiah said about God earlier in the book. And so you're kind of wondering, okay, what's going on here? Uh, This this term, remember, uh, is a term that he actually uses four times in the book of Nehemiah. When we read it later, Nehemiah 13, 22, it says this, Nehemiah says this, Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me, (laughs) spare me according, not to what I've done, but according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Nehemiah is calling for his life to be spared for all eternity, not because of how good he is, but because of the steadfast love of God. And so Nehemiah knows that he cannot merit his salvation or by his salvation, but that is a gift of God's grace. Nehemiah knew this. He knew that he needed mercy and grace from God. And so he cries out, remember me, oh my God. This is the hope. This is what all of us cry out. This is our great desire is that God would remember us, that he would know us by name, that we would be cleansed by the blood of Jesus, and that we would be welcomed to him and brought home. There's a story of a Brazilian girl named Christina who lived in a poor city and in a poor neighborhood and in a poor house. She lived in a house where the floor was made of pallets. And besides that, they pretty much just had a wash basin and a wood-burning stove. She had dreams of going to the big city and experiencing it and making it big in life. And her mother warned her against some of the evils that existed there, but she paid no attention. One night, she snuck off and took the bus into the city. The mother awoke in the morning, and she knew what had happened. And so immediately, the mother made her way towards the bus station. But on the way to the bus station, she stopped at a photo booth, and she took all of these black and white pictures of herself. And she had a collection of them. She spent almost all her money to do this. Finally, she got on the bus, and she went into the big city. And she went to all of the areas where she knew that those who were homeless, those who would be wandering, those who needed money and financial help would be. And so she went into the bars. She went into the hotels. She went to the brothels. And everywhere she went, she hung up her picture on bulletin boards, on mirrors, even on telephone booths. And on the back of each note, each, each photo, there was a little note to her daughter. Well, one morning, her daughter, who was captured in human trafficking, came down the stairs from her hotel room. She no longer had the youthful joy and spontaneity that she had before. The, the glimmer of, of happiness from her eyes had disappeared. And as she came down the steps that morning, she looked across the lobby and saw on a mirror a picture of her mother. Her eyes started to burn. Her throat got tight. She didn't know what was going on. She went over and she grabbed the picture and she pulled it and she turned it over. And on the back was this note from her mother. Whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Please come home. Friends, this is God's message to us.
You see, the thing with Christina is that her oppression was caused by her own sinful rebellion and the sin of others for sure. But her mother did not care. Her mother said, come home. I don't care what you have done or who you have become. Come home to me. And she did. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. That in the midst of our helplessness, in the midst of our oppression, caused by our own wrongdoing, Christ came into our world and he said, come home. Come home to the Father with me. Friends, the oppression many suffer like ours is due to our own poor decisions. But let us hear the cries of the oppressed, enter into their oppression. Let us confront those who who lobby that oppression and let us overflow, let us overthrow the oppression with generosity and grace. The generosity and grace that God has given to us, let us give to others. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much that you did not leave us in slavery, that you didn't leave us in our deadness, that you did not leave us in our wickedness, but that you came to draw us to yourself by pouring out upon us mercy and grace. May you give us courage to do the same. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.